Okay, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 250. Today we're going to be in Isaiah 14 through 16, Psalm 106, and 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Okay, so um, the majority of this passage in Isaiah that we're looking at today are going to be oracles against the nations around Israel. I mean, beginning with Babylon and then going to Assyria, and we'll hear a little bit about Moab, a little bit about Philistia, but it begins with... Um, kind of this, uh, this again, this extension of future hope. And the basic idea is, uh, number one, uh, carrying on the theme of the new exodus. So Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob. Again, choose Israel, right? The choosing of Israel is definitely an, an exodus uh, theme, that they are the nation he's chosen to be his, and he will set them in their own land. So this is Isaiah foreseeing the exile and foreseeing the future hope for those who are in exile. Um, and sojourners will join and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. We've seen this theme repeated a bunch of times. Um, but here it's more of the flavor of dominance over the people who had been their enemies. Um, so it's it's um, not clear if the sojourners here are to be taken as the same as like the peoples and those who were their captives and rule over and oppress them. Like now that they are sojourners who want to come to Israel kind of with hat in hand. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so the peoples will, will, will take them and bring them. So there will be some assistance by them. And I think, you know, we do see that in the, in the, uh, return under Cyrus, right? And the house of Israel will, will possess them as male and female slaves. And uh, the degree to which that's an intensely negative thing is uh, not really uh, indicated by the fact that they are slaves, as we've seen the, the, the status of Eved. I mean, obviously, they're not like landowners and stuff. It's not great. And they are subservient. But again, as I've emphasized before, it's important not to read um, later forms of slavery back into what would have been considered um, the status of an Eved back in the Old Testament. And they will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Okay, now we get into um, an oracle against the king of Babylon. In fact, it's not even called an oracle, it's called a, a taunt against him, okay? And uh, notice that this happens, again, in the context of these New Exodus themes. So when the Lord has given you rest, remember the idea of them resting in the land, and here is that word from which Noah's name is taken, uh, Hani Choa, he will cause you to rest. And um, uh, you uh, you think of like this this is the this is kind of like the the thing you're going for the thing you want if you're a king rest from surrounding enemies rest with the Lord Adam was said to be have been rested in the Garden of Eden um, also their turmoil and their hard service that term hard service is frequently used of the slavery in Egypt ha uh, avodah is the word. Um, and uh, so the the hard service with which you were made to serve, um, obviously here talking about the future Babylonian captivity, but that being compared to their time in Egypt. Okay, we've already seen that being uh, mentioned as well. Um, and now that is uh, that is they're receiving rest from that. So that is Israel in the past received rest from their haova from their avodah, um, their hard service. Um, now they are receiving rest from their avodah. And um, and when that happens, you will take this up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And we've already mentioned in, um, in uh, several times already that 
Isaiah, one of the things that is kind of characteristic of him is that although he is an 8th century prophet, he is aware of the threat that Babylon will pose, particularly in the 6th century. Um, so, you know, uh, Isaiah prophesying in uh, mid to low 700s, Babylon comes on the scene in around 600 BC, um, and so that's the time difference. But as I've noted, there is reason to believe that Isaiah did uh, clearly see Babylon as a threat even back then. So um, here is the picture of Babylon being punished for all the things that it has done, and as the Assyrian um, is going as the as Assyria is punished for uh, carrying out wickedness against the people of God. So now is the king of Babylon. So how the oppressor has ceased, his insolent fury has ceased. Um, Yahweh has broken his staff. There it is, Mate. Remember we saw that the other day. The the, the symbol of rulership that's very common in Isaiah. His staff is broken, the scepters of rulers are broken. You ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth now is at rest. And there's the rest term again, nacha. The whole earth rests and is quiet and is breaking forth into singing because of your downfall, king of Babylon. Um, the trees um, are, are said to rejoice. The cypress and the cedars of Lebanon uh, they they say since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes against us, right? Because his building is so excessive, and they're hewing down these great trees that you make fabulous palaces and temples with. Um, there's you, no one's doing that now, so they're celebrating. Um, and then in verses nine through eleven, you get this picture of Sheol uh, welcoming the king of Babylon there, um, coming to greet him, and not only Sheol itself. But all those who were kings of the nation, welcoming the kings of the nations, uh, including the nations that they would have, that uh, the king of Babylon would have laid low, and they're like, uh, "Welcome to Sheol." Sheol, Sheol, of course, being kind of like the generic way of referring to the land of the dead, the grave. It's not explicitly hell, um, but um, and you know, and they they're welcoming him and and saying to him, "You too have become weak as we. You have become like us." And um, uh, the, the, the end of verse 11, I think, is some of the grossest imagery that you get in Isaiah. Maggots are laid down as a bed beneath you, so you're sleeping on a bed of maggots now, and worms are your covers. You just have a blanket of worms. Ugh. Um, and, uh, okay, now verse 12, is, uh, and, and where kind of it, go, it goes to here, is uh, a little bit tricky because— in the history of interpretation, um, there have definitely been some who have taken this as kind of, yeah, it's about the king of Babylon, but it's kind of really about Satan. And so this portrait of Satan that a lot of us kind of hear about, right, that, that I do think a lot of it is justified from some other places in Scripture, um, they, it, it's... Um, uh, it's either confirmed or, or fed by this passage, and that is this idea that Satan is created as the most beautiful of the angels, becomes prideful, rebels against God, and is cast out of heaven. <clears throat> and, um, uh, and and there's actually a, a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, where uh, the same thing is done in an oracle against the king of Tyre, right? It's, this says it's against the king of Tyre, but it's it, it really sounds like it's against Satan. 
Now, I am not particularly persuaded by that way of reading either of these texts. I think this makes perfect sense simply as a reference to the King of Babylon. And indeed, uh, uh, number uh, indeed, I think we can know a lot of these elements of Satan's biography, we might say, from elsewhere in Scripture. So I do think it's important to see this as what the text says it is, a, a an oracle against the king of Babylon, um, observations that we've made uh, regarding typology notwithstanding. Um, I just don't know if there's any good textual warrant to see this as talking about Satan. But one of the reasons why really, I, I don't know if it's kind of like a chicken or the egg, uh, did, did this interpretation precede this or did this cause this interpretation? But he says, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Now, why would that be? Uh, so, so day star uh, uh, is translated in the old Latin translation, the Vulgate, which is done by Jerome, as Lucifer, which there simply means light bearer. Okay, but um, you could see taking this as reference to Satan. This is. This is where that title becomes applied to Satan, and he begins being called Lucifer. Um, Lucifer, otherwise, is not a biblical designation for Satan. And the fact that I think that this text does not refer to Satan means that I do not think that Lucifer at all is a, at least a biblical way to refer to Satan. Uh, but the idea of calling him Daystar, son of the dawn, um, I don't know if we can be absolutely sure of what this means. Some have suggested it's talking about a crescent moon, this term Halel, which is, is um, day star or bright one or something like that. Um, I think the best interpretation is that this is the planet Venus. It's a exceedingly um, bright heavenly body. And the idea is that it, you see it start to rise, but then the sun comes up into the sky at the time that Venus rises and you can no longer see it. So before it's reached its height, its glory, right? It's it's cut down by the surpassing brightness of the sun. Um, and I see. I think we see that imagery played out um, uh, as as we go through here. So you laid the nations low. You said in your heart, "I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God." Right. So ambitious Venus going up into heaven. Uh, um, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. So you know, like I'm. And I'm this prideful king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, or, or whoever the specific one we're thinking of is, probably Nebuchadnezzar. Um, um, I, 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 he just has this ambition to be like, like, you know, a, a rival to God, outpowering God Himself. Um, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like Elyon, like the Most High. But you now are dead. You are brought down to Sheol. To the far reaches of the pit. And those who see you uh, begin to ponder, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let prisoners go home? And, and by comparison, you've got all these other kings of the nations lying in glory, so they're, they're dead, but they're in tombs. They've, they've, they're, 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 they have, they're, they're honorable, right? They, uh, but but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch. And I think this is a I, – I, I don't think that this means that Nebuchadnezzar was not given a proper burial. I think this is figurative language for disgrace and death because in Israel it's a disgraceful thing to not be buried, to not – and, and that's, that's generally the case, um, uh, especially for kings throughout the ancient world. Um, uh, you're clothed with the slain. 
uh, those pierced by the sword, those who go down to the debt uh, to the pit. Um, you will not be joined with them in burial because you've destroyed your because you have destroyed your land and have slain your people. Um, may the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Now, um, one thing that I think might be going on here is that while this is directed to the king of Babylon, it's being spoken in the ears of Judeans, right? And what were the Judeans called all the way at the beginning of uh, the book of Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 4? Um, offspring of evildoers, Zerah Mereim. And here, um, the offspring, th those in Babylon belonging to Babylon are called the Zerah so perhaps like a challenge, are you guys going to be like this? What is your end going to be like, uh, Israel? Because the idea here is that uh, the slaughter is prepared for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. So his posterity is cut off. And that continues there then in verses 22 and 23, that not only is this king brought down, but Babylon will never rise again. Babylonian rulers will never rise again. I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, right? Israel's hope is its remnant. Um, Babylon will have none. Um, I will make it a possession of the hedgehog. Remember the um, uh, the other day in chapter 13, 21 through 22, where we've got like ostriches and jackals now living in Babylon. Um, it'll be uh, it'll be the possession of the hedgehog. So Sonic will be running around there collecting all his rings, uh, pools of water, uh, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction. Then Isaiah turns to to Assyria, which is of course um, his own contemporary. Now this is his own time, his threat. And Yahweh says, "As I've planned, so it shall be; as I've purposed, so it shall stand." that I will break the Assyrian in my land. And here, of course, if we're looking for a historical um, uh, event that corresponds to this, I think we want to once again point to the invasion of Sennacherib under the reign of Hezekiah. Um, on my mountain, uh, on my mountains, I'm going to tremble him, uh, trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. So not only Assyria, right, but particularly Assyria. Um, this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations for the Yahweh of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? Um, his hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? This stretched out hand of the Lord, his Yad Natuya, is the same thing that we've seen directed against Israel. So this is a strong image of God, right? And this, uh, in particularly, we see it in that refrain, uh, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is outstretched still. Um, uh, we, we see that refrain in 525, 912, 917, 921, and 1014. And now it's directed against the king of Assyria. Then we have an oracle concerning Philistia, and this oracle is dated. It's given in the year that King Ahaz died. Um, the second time an oracle is, or a, um, a part of Isaiah, we should say, is um, dated in this way. Remember chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died? But here the year, the year of King Ahaz's death is 716 BC, and uh, the fact that this king is dead um, might be a cause of rejoicing for Israel's uh, neighbors who are their enemies— the Philistines, but he, but I the Lord tells him the king of Philistia through Isaiah the prophet, rejoice not, 
O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. And um, as far as I'm aware, it's we don't it's not clear how um, the 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 uh, it, we're not told historically how um, Ahaz um, struck the Philistines. We do know that there was significant conflict between them. They had been raiding Judah and taking their cities, according to Second Chronicles two eighteen. And so, uh, yeah. So um, don't rejoice that this has happened. Um, that this that your your enemy's king is dead. Uh, from the serpent's root, if he's been a serpent to you, right, will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent, a seraph meo faith. Uh, so it'll be worse for you, and you could think, like, yeah, a, a flying serpent is going to come come at you. Um, the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy will lie down in safety. So your enemies are actually going to be the ones who are prosperous and safe. But for as for you, I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Um, Wail, O gate, cry out, O city. So the city and its gates, right? Melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out from the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. And, and who is it that comes in from the north? Again, the Assyrians, right? They, they attack from the north. But as for Jerusalem, right, whom you have sought to harass all these years, what will one answer messengers of the nation? Okay, so the, the, the people coming to inquire, well, they will say, Yahweh has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. And then he turns to Moab, Okay, and we're gonna be we'll be in Moab for the rest of the passage today, um, and it's basically a geography lesson. There's a lot of Moabite cities that are named. Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone. Uh, you've got uh, Kir mentioned. Um, uh, you you have people going up to the temple at Debon to the high places to do what to cry right. So all of these locations that are mentioned here, uh, there's weeping and mourning and um, uh, a deep tragedy has befell them. Uh, you have Nebo, Medeba, um, on every head is baldness, every beard is shorn, in the streets they wear sackcloth. You've been following Journey Through Scripture for a while, you know what these are. These are gestures, these are what you do when tragedy has befallen you, when you're, when you're mourning. There is uh, wailing um, in the, uh, and, and, and people melting in tears, Heshbon and El Ella, um, their voices heard as far as Yahaz, the armed men are crying aloud, um, and, and there's a couple things in here too that where we see Isaiah is grieved because of this. So my heart cries out for Moab, verse 5. Um, and then again, we got more cities mentioned, fugitives fleeing to Zoar, to Eglat Shalishia. There are people going up weeping to the ascent of Luhit, uh, raising a cry of destruction. Uh, Nimrim is a desolation. Uh, you've got vegetation, grass withering, vegetation failing. No, no, nothing is green anymore in the land. Um, they are carrying away the abundance that they have gathered. Right, what they've saved for a rainy day, they're carrying it over the brook of the willows. Um, uh, there's a crying going around all the land of Moab. Certainly there is. All of these cities uh, wailing at Eglaim, wailing at Be'er Elim. Uh, the waters of Debon are full of blood, and I will bring upon Debon even more. For a, a, I will bring a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Once again, notice that the remnant here, as opposed to the remnant of Israel, is being hunted. 
All right, and, and then look what happens in chapter 16. So a lamb is being sent to the ruler of the land. This appears to be some kind of tribute, but it's very little, right? And I think that's the idea. Moab has been devastated um, by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. So you're sending this to the ruler of Jerusalem. And um, and the, the people of Moab are here described like fleeing birds um, um, and uh, coming to Jerusalem for help. This may be along the lines of what we saw in chapter 14, right, where God has compassion on Jacob and sets them in, sets uh, Jacob in his own land, and then like all these sojourners are coming uh, to him. So that that this might be like the same kind of thing that's going on there. And they come to the king in Jerusalem, whom we've seen will be reigning with this mighty uh, reign of justice, right, and 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 goodness and fairness and equity. And um, so you come to him saying, give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. So, right, the midday sun is just beaten down upon us, figurative language, of course. And, you know, your shadow will give us relief from that, from even the, the strongest beams of the sun. Uh, shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. You know, they're here. They're over here. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you and be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more, destruction has ceased. Um, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So once again, we see this promise of a future messianic king. We have heard the pride of Moab, how proud he is, okay? So some of the reasons, the the, the reasons for, ju for judgment and perhaps one of the reasons why his downfall is so humiliating, right? It is a prideful nation, arrogance, pride, insolent, his idol boasting, and therefore let Moab wail for Moab because no one else will do it, right? You've been proud, you've been insolent, you've been arrogant, and now no one will cry for you but you. Uh, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Harasheth, right? Like that you that, that you once had, the, 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 the good food that you once once had. But then perhaps it is a gracious thing that they do have someone else who laments their downfall, and that is Isaiah. So, you know, look at verse 9. Therefore, I weep with the, weep, with the weeping of Yazer, um, for the vine of Sibma, I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliela. Um, and because, and why, and here we have another image, right? There's some, their, their harvest, um, that they're, they're not going to get to enjoy it. So they've got this summer fruit, um, but, you know, the shouting has ceased. The, the celebration you do when it's time to bring in the food, start pressing the wine and everything, right? The joy and gladness of the faith of the fruitful field is taken away. Uh, there's no singing in vineyards, no cheers, um, no one treading wine in the presses. Uh, I have put an end to, to all of that, the Lord says. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab. Okay, the 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 thing the, the playing of this stringed instrument is what my the deepest parts of my being are. I'm 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 lamenting over what has happened to them and my inmost self for Kir Harasheth. Perhaps part of the reason why Isaiah feels such sadness about this is because indeed Moab is regarded a, as a as a brother to Israel. When Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, right? He's 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 seeking his gods. 
Um, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. Um, this is the word that Yahweh spoke concerning Moab in the past. So this is apparently an early um, oracle against Moab, but now Yahweh has spoken in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. So maybe this, the idea here is, all right, this thing I just spoken is a little bit rusty of a prophecy, but uh, within three years you will see it come to pass. All right, let's go to Psalm 106. So Psalm 106 um, is actually, uh, as far as we can tell, a psalm that uh, is written from the exile. And I think you see this pretty clearly in verse 47, where the appeal is made to God, save us, O Yahweh, our God, and gather us from among the nations, okay? So this appears to be a fairly late psalm, um, and it begins with the word that we know well, hallelujah, praise, which means praise the Lord. Um, the word for to praise is halal, and if you want to make that an imperative, a command to more than one person, you, it, it is the form halalu, and then yah is, of course, the shortened form for Yahweh. So hallelujah means praise the Lord, or, or praise Yahweh. Uh, give thanks for his steadfast love. Why? Because he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And oh, is that something that the exiles have to remember? Who can utter the mighty deeds of Yahweh and declare all his praise? Um, I think that's a little bit of a weird translation on the English standards part. Who can? A lot of people can. Um, I, you could just, its it actually is a little bit more natural, I think, to translate it, who will? Who will utter the mighty deeds of Yahweh or declare his praise? And the idea is, you know, can I get a show of hands? Uh, Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And then, and then God is appealed to for help. Remember me, O Yahweh, when you show favor to your people. So he's clinging on to the, the psalmist is clinging on to the kind of promises that we see in Isaiah, the promises for future hope and restoration and in, indeed glory under the future Davidic Messiah. Help me when you save them, that I may look on the prosperity of your chosen ones, I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation and glory with your inheritance. And then what we get in Psalm 106 is essentially a blow-by-blow blow recollection of the history of Israel, at least up through from, from the time of Egypt, from the time of the exodus from Egypt, down through what appears to be a description of the time of the judges. And indeed, um, it's not a favorable recounting of their history, because the idea is both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done in wickedness. And so, he, this is an acknowledgment of the historic sins throughout the years of Israel. So first in Egypt, they don't consider his wondrous works. Um, they don't remember the abundance of his steadfast love, but even at the Sea of Reeds, right, like the very beginning, what are they what are they saying to Moses right before he stretches out his staff? Were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to kill us in the desert? Like, let us go back so that we can serve the Egyptians. And then God, of course, saves them nevertheless, right? Um, he redeems them from the power of the enemy. The, the redemption is a, a, a metaphor that is often used of God's salvation, that he's purchased you from another. Um, waters covered their adversaries, no one was left, and then they believed his words and sang praise. So you get right, right after the crossing of the sea, the song of Moses, and then the, 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 the song of Miriam. Uh, and then, but then they grumble in the wilderness. They grumble about not having water or manna or quail. 
and God sends wasting disease among them. Um, and um, and then men in the camp become jealous of Moses. So it fast forwards to number 16, right, where they come to him and they come to Aaron and they say, hey, um, all in the congregation are holy. Why do you guys exalt yourselves as if God hadn't chosen them, right? And the earth opens up and swallows them at Dathan. Uh, they cover the company of Avi Ram, kind of like the, the ringleader, as well as fire breaking out and burning up the wicked, and then goes it goes back in time to the to the golden calf incident uh, the calf they made at Horeb. Remember, Horeb is uh, another way of referring to the area of Sinai. Um, they exchange the glory of God for an image of God that eats grass. Um, this may be where Paul gets his language in Romans one from, where he's talking about the sinfulness of mankind, and he says they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images re- resembling. Um, birds and animals and reptiles. Um, they forgot their Savior, who'd done great for thing, things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham. Remember, Egypt is a descendant of Ham, according to uh, the book of Genesis. Um, uh, so they, they forget those things, and and so God sets out uh, to destroy them, right? Because they start making for themselves an image of an ox that eats grass. That's what they want to worship instead of the Lord. And so God is like, you remember, he tells Moses, I'll wipe them out and just start over with you. And hey, you know, like, I'll still be working with the offspring of Abraham. But uh, but um, but then Moses intercedes and turns away God's wrath from destroying them. Then it goes forward again to Numbers 14, where the spies bring back the uh, unfavorable report of the land, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, of course, and um, and um, and there it is that God tells them that their whole generation will indeed fall in the wilderness, and here, even beyond this, would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. So again, you're talking about exile here. Um, and indeed, there are places in the Pentateuch that do foresee a time of exile. Leviticus 26 is one that sticks out in my mind. Um, then a few chapters forward to Numbers 25. The, this is the, the the worship of Baal of Peor right after uh, Balaam's oracles, and they're making sacrifices to the dead. Either, either they're meaning that there is some kind of ancestor worship going on, or perhaps it means that they're making sacrifices to idols that are, of course, not living. And a plague breaks out. And what happens there is that as as the people of Israel are weeping over what they've done at the tent of meeting, uh, Phinehas, who is a, a Levite, um, uh, turns around and he sees uh, in that in that time under the Lord's plague, right? The uh, Moses and the leaders weeping at the tent of meeting. He turns around and he sees a guy of Israel, from Israel bringing a Midianite woman into his tent, and he goes and he kills them, and that is what actually averts the plague. And it says to him, and this is the only this is one of the only two times in the Old Testament where it speaks like that. That was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. The other place, of course, being in Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believes God and it is counted to him as righteousness. The expression is chashav lo tzedakah. Um, And here, of course, the way that that looks for Phineas is he is given a perpetual priesthood. Uh, then goes a little bit forward. Um, what is that? No, I think it's backwards to number 20, uh, Numbers 20, yeah, um, where... Uh, they anger God at the waters of Meribah, and here is where Moses himself gets pulled down, right? And and um, 
uh, comes out and, and strikes the rock, even though he's been told to speak to the rock, but it's kind of like an act of hubris also, right? And Moses himself is present, prevented from going into the land. And then when they do the conquest, the focus isn't on how God, you know, gave them the land. The focus is on how they didn't fully, they don't fully carry it out. And as we saw at the end of the book of Joshua and in the book of Judges, that instead they're they're making sl- uh, slaves out of the people of the land. They're trying to make nice with them. Also, they're mixing with the nations. They're learning to do as they did, serving their idols, and those idols become a snare to them. And you get also one of these expressions that is one of the clearest um, descriptions of human sacrifice, I think, as well, and that is in verse 37, that they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to to demons. Um, other passages that speak this blatantly about human sacrifice would be like Isaiah 57, 5, Ezekiel 16, 20, and Ezekiel um, 20, 26. Um, they... Um, yeah, so, and then, um, of course, the, the the time of the judges is also described, where Yahweh's anger is kindled against them, so he gives them into the hand of nations. They rule over them for a while, but then they cry out, and in their distress, God hears it, and he remembers his covenant and relents, right, because of his steadfast love. And so the idea of this psalm is, Lord, that's been us, and you have done that. You have relented from your anger and shown your steadfast love, will you do that again for us? Save us, O Yahweh, our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And it ends with a blessing towards the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And just if I if I might just comment briefly here, um, this appeal, right? Like, um, you, it's hard to read this psalm without a little bit of skepticism, right? Because, yeah, God has shown Israel his steadfast love and forgiven them so many times, right? What makes you think that this time will be any different, right? Like, like is and and so this is, I think, one of the ways that maybe we don't always think about that the new te- that the Old Testament does point forward to Christ because it it cries out for this for something that will break this cycle. And this will become inherent in, especially when we get into Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that part of the promise of this new covenant that will come will be giving uh, giving the people a new heart, the change of the spirit that is from that that is brought by the spirit of God um, on the um, stubborn and sinful hearts of men, and that this will be given as a result of the forgiveness of their sins. So that that some something has to give, something has to happen that is going to break this constant cycle cycle that Israel always finds herself in. All right, finally, let's go to Second Corinthians nine six through fifteen. So Paul has been talking, uh, encouraging them about uh, taking a collection for uh, for the gift that he is planning on sending to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and here he kind of like. Uh, gives what I think is like the final uh, big giving principle, and that is that you want to be, if you are generous with the Lord, the Lord will be generous with you. And we don't always get to divine exactly how that is, right? This is not Paul saying, you know, put some money in the offering basket and you'll have a Cadillac. Um, But it is saying that, well, actually, let's look at how he says this, right? So he says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. So obviously giving here is sowing, and reaping is what you will get in the future. 
right? And if you're sparing with your sowing, your reaping will be sparing. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So what do you want? A, a, a sparing, uh, do you want to reap sparingly or do you want to reap bountifully? Because if you want to reap bountifully, then you should sow bountifully. You should give generously. Um, but not because I'm twisting your arm, right? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, oh, shucks, uh, not, not, not under compulsion, oh, man, everybody's going to see that I'm not putting anything in, right? No, it's got to be in your heart because guess what? God doesn't need your money. He, God loves, God wants what's in your heart, and he wants this as a, as a tangible expression of that. God loves a cheerful giver. So if you can't give with joy, don't give. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all, all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely and he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now that is a quote from Psalm 112.9. And this is a Psalm, we, you know, we read this and it, it sounds like, wait, this sounds like it's talking about God, but here you're trying to encourage me to be like this. Well, actually Psalm 112 is not uh, about God per se, it's about the man who fears Yahweh, and this is something he does. He gives freely to the poor, he opens his hand to the poor, to use an Old Testament um, idiom, and because of that, his righteousness endures forever, which is a, 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 a powerful thing to say about this person, um, because elsewhere— Whose righteousness endures forever? Psalm 111.3, Psalm 112.9, God does. But here, the man who is, in a sense, acting like God also participates in that enduring righteousness. He says, he who supplies the seed to the sower. So who do you think gave you the stuff you have that you, that you can give or not give? Who do you think gave you that in the first place? It's he who supplies that seed. The one who gave you that, the one who gives you bread for food, he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So notice the picture here, okay? He w so you sow um, uh, bountifully, okay? And here we have what that reaping bountifully looks like. Okay, so you're trusting the one who's provided you in the first place with it, right? And what does he gives you? give you? He gives you more seed, but more seed to do what with? To go and buy that Cadillac? No. More seed for sowing. Because notice, in this passage, sowing is the word that Paul is using for giving. That's the imagery of giving in this passage, and so the idea is, is that, that the one who gave you the bread in the first place, if you give, if you're generous, will give you even more for the purpose of also using it um, uh, wisely and, 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 and giving even more. Um, I think the idea here is the idea of stewardship, right? He um, Obviously, there's other ways to tease this out, but uh, it uh, seems to me to be one of the implications of he who is faithful and little— will be entrusted with much. Um, and so, and Paul explicitly says that this is what he means by this. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, not to have that Cadillac, but to be generous in every way, which through us will do what? It will produce thanksgiving to God. So the ultimate good thing is that people will see this as coming not from you, but from God, and their walk will be strengthened because of it.
And I'll tell you, as one who has been blessed by other people's generosity before, um, that is uh, that the when when a person's heart is oriented in the right direction, and you give to them, they praise God for it because they know ultimately where it came from. They're not going to say, which is which is pretty interesting, right? Because they're not going to say. Oh, the Corinthians are so nice. What a generous group the Corinthians are. No, Paul's like, no, the good thing is that people are going to be saying, thank God for his work among the Gentiles. Thank God for his work among this church, that he would put it in their heart to care for us in such a tangible way. And really, when we give, that's what should be our motivation, that this person is going to praise God more because of something that the Lord has moved my heart to give. And you could, of course, be cynical about that and be like, well, I'm the one who gave. You're welcome, God. But no, who supplied you with that seed for your sowing? And who's the one who transformed you and moved your heart to give? And who's the one who gave you such a hope that it is worth giving all you have for the sake of it? It is to the glory of God. So by their approval of your service— Paul says in verse 13, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. It comes from this, that what you believe. That is why you give. If you don't care about the gospel, why would you be generous in this way? The generosity of your contribution for them, for all others, while they, lo- they long for you and pray for you. So now these saints, this fellowship between you and them will be strengthened and maybe even established in the first place because of this love offering that's going. And so they're going to be longing for you now. They're going to be praying for you because of the surpassing grace of God that's upon you. Thanks be to God for the ability to do this inexpressible gift. No. For your generosity, no. But in all this, we giving, we emptying our pockets for the sake of one another, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So you want to know what motivates your giving? You want to know what goes through the mind of someone uh, when they are giving uh, owing to their submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ? It is thanksgiving to God because he has given to us far more than we can ever give. All right, everybody, thanks so much for joining me today. As always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. But until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.